Over the last 100 years, the role of women has been transformed in our societies, from exercising the right to vote, to exercising control over their own bodies, their agencies, their future, to forging ahead in their careers. Uh, there is fairly no aspect of uh, human endeavor that does not have instances of women leadership. The last two years of the pandemic has shown us, as you just saw in this uh, short film, that women have been at the forefront of solutions to managing societal crises. And yet, there are a very small proportion of women that are actually able to exercise these choices and these agencies to their full measure. And the ones that do so, do so against tremendous odds. So the central question that we're going to address in this session is that how can we think of leadership by women in ways that will help us craft a more just, a more prosperous, and a fairer society? We have a spectacular panel here today. They're all not just strong advocates for women and girls, they're also phenomenal role models. So we're going to talk policy, we're going to talk politics, we're going to talk personal journeys, and we're going to talk sustainable development. So let's dive in. Let me start, um, Minister, with you. You've been at the forefront, you've been an educator, you've run political movements, social movements, um, you've been in politics for a long time. When you look at what has changed during your journey in the public space, what are some of the highlights? What are some of the big changes that you've seen from the time you started out to the way women are taking leadership and ownership of their lives today? Thank you very much. Well, um, coming from South Africa, in South Africa we have space for women, and you're quite aware that some of you that were in a struggle for so many years. So in that particular struggle, we struggled side by side with men, and we took decisions to really join the army, both men and women, so that we wanted to liberate our country. But our leadership has felt that, no, the arms are not good, we need to negotiate. So part of, of the negotiations, in the delegation of negotiations to hand over power from the apartheid regime to the democratic South Africa, women were part of the negotiators. And from there on, we took a decision to really pass a policy as an organization to strive for 30% representation of women in all sectors, in all decision making. And we achieve the 30%, we move on and up the number because the population of South Africa, women are more and, and men are less. So using that particular uh, population, we make it a point that you need to have 50% representation of women. And these women that are 50% here, in, in our parliament, we are striving to go to 50%, we are 44%, but in the executive in South Africa, we are 50% women uh, ministers and 50% of males. So those women that are making the 50% are not just women that are peak on the street, women that have got history, women that have got contributed, women that are strong. So as South Africa, we felt that to, to, to make sure that our women are exposed, you're quite aware that some of our women, we had the first chairperson of the uh, African Union who is a woman from South Africa. 
We also have got the first uh, director of Women Desk in the UN. It's a woman from South Africa. So we, we, we are saying as South Africans, women have got strength, women need space. Women cannot be viewed in terms of the type of husbands that they have and the type of families that they have, but we are viewing women as individuals, as people that can contribute positively to the betterment of the world. We are in South Africa now training women for peacekeeping and also um, mediating in the conflict zones because we felt that the conflicts that are there, especially in Africa and in the world, these are conflicts that are caused by men, mostly, and in, in, in that vein. So people that are carrying the brand are women and the children. So if women are peacekeepers, if women are negotiators and mediators, women will bring sense to that conflict situation. And for rebuilding after conflict, Therefore, women are very key for them because as they rebuild their country, they build it for their children because in some other case, we are caring women. And women are caring for the children, are caring for everybody and the families. So as South African, we, we feel that really the world must really look at women. We have the SG, SDGs, which is number five, and empowerment of women it's not really just to say, follow me, but you must task a woman, whatever difficult task is there. We are striving for equal pay. In South Africa, we've got equal pay in terms of our equal contribution, whether it is in the economy, whether it's at work, whether in the public service. So we are on equal pay. So we, we, we feel that the world must see that because on equal pay, we've got women in South Africa who are managing families without husbands, without men, but those families are prosperous. Kids are going to school just because women are strong and taking care of that. So you empower a woman, you empower a nation. Wonderful. Uh, let me ask one follow-up on this. Do you feel that the struggle, the, that the apartheid movement and the role that women needed to play in that actually helped you make that case more uh, in a, in a sort of more, in a faster way than would have happened in alternate situations? Do crises bring out uh, well, leadership? De definitely, uh, I have been shaped by the situation in my country, and I've been shaped by the other women that were taking care of the struggle, and we are shaping our girls now to make sure that they become strong. And the only way that we are doing now in South Africa is to put a program in education that mm. we support girls who are taking subjects like maths, mathematics, science, engineering, so, so that they are supported because we feel that they can do more and they can do better. Of course, as a woman in South Africa, I felt that I wanted to fight a war. That, that, that was my wish. I wanted to carry a gun and liberate my country, but I couldn't do that. So I'm a soldier uh, who is just slipping down because we had to make sure that we negotiate the handover of power. But if then come, come, time can really come the other way, we'll just put the high heels out and fight for our country.
Wonderful. Let me turn now um, to Madam um, Khan from uh, Bangladesh. You are a member of parliament, but you've had a many decade career in the corporate sector before this. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the journey. How uh, difficult or how different is it for a young girl entering the workforce, young woman entering the workforce and making her way up to the top? Uh, what are some of the issues that women need to manage and deal with that are different from what young men need to go through? Um, and are there similarities uh, that you've experienced between your career in banking and your career in politics? Thank you, Chandrika. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I've been hearing such thought-provoking conversation in the last two days. You know, I think when we we are from a privileged background because you know all of us here we cannot with a family which uh, had four generations of public representatives and uh, with role good role models my mother my uh, grandmother my uh, in-laws my uh, father and we were not we were made to believe that you can do anything. There is no difference between a girl child and a boy child. But when I started my career, it was that uh, maybe I was the only uh, female in the team, in the bank that I joined. But I think there are more struggles that women, women and girls usually face not just in my country, throughout the world, when young women start out to uh, start begin their careers. And, uh, you know, from, from there, we have actually come a long way, in a sense, but still there are struggles. And if I talk about Bangladesh, Bangladesh being, you know, 65th of among 50, 156 countries in the Global Gender Gap Index, being a women empowerment champion in South Asia for seven consecutive years, being you know in the top 10 for political empowerment of women, it has not happened overnight. And we have had, we required policy interventions, we required affirmative actions. We required political will. And for that, for myself, I think the role model is our Honorable Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina. And that political will and the policy changes have made sure that whatever struggles I faced or uh, young women who came into careers faced in the mid-1990s, they do not face now. But now that women are, you know, there are 37% women in Bangladesh's labor force. There are 27% uh, women in the government services. There are 4 million women working in the RMG sector. All this required will policy changes, and I'm happy to say that 
we, in the young uh, women of Bangladesh, I see much more confidence. They want to be, they want to be brilliant scientists. They want to come into public, public service. And for me, more than uh, what my personal journey is, it is very important that when I go to a, you know, one, a very uh, conservative, remote area in a village, and when I ask a young girl what she would like to be, and she, and she answers that, you know, one of them answer, will answer that she wants to be a police officer. Somebody else will say that she wants to be a scientist. That's what really inspires me to do more. And I always feel that empowered women empower women. And uh, Bangladesh is an example. And we, you know, we want to continue to be, to show the way in women empowerment. Thank you. Um, Minister Rani, let me turn to you now. Uh, and let me ask you a very basic question. Uh, is there such a thing as a distinct woman leader, or are there the, are there traits and attributes that you see in women when they are leading that are different from what you see in your male counterparts? And can you talk a little bit also in the last two years of the pandemic, where you've seen women emerge as leaders and really um, help their communities, support their communities um, around them? I think that's a very tricky question because. If you want to serve the cause of gender justice, you cannot be complicit to handcuff the term leadership to a particular gender. To say that only a female leader will deliver gender justice and a man is incapable of it is prejudicial in itself. I think that I live in a time where in our political history, there have been two transitions that I have been witness to. One, when I saw Atal Bihari Vajpayee as Prime Minister, and Atalji made good governance a political plank. Bijli, Sadak, Pani, they became the infrastructural needs of every Indian on which Indians were inspired or were invoked so that they can come out and vote. Under Prime Minister Modi's leadership, I have seen the gender aspect, and I don't talk of only justice, become central to policy making, become central to politics, and become central to administration. And uh, to say what can a good leader deliver on gender justice, there are many examples that I can quote from Prime Minister Modi's leadership. The fact that we've had a female head of state before, and that now with a male head of state, the first time our country has seen a menstrual hygiene protocol, you may, in discussions before this, not expect that of a male leader, but the fact that Prime Minister Modi delivered on it, and it is not publicly spoken of, often tells you what is that inherent prejudice that is married to the concept of leadership vis-a-vis -vis gender justice. The fact that in the pandemic, we had many challenges that we needed to address, that yes, this pandemic did not come with a prescription as to how it is to be addressed, from a health or an infrastructure perspective or an economic perspective. And the world at large was grappling as to how to come to terms with an issue which has cropped up. It's a once in a century pandemic. But at the same time, the prime minister ensured that policy and legislative needs
which have gender at the center are decisions that he took. One such decision was with regards to labor. The simplification of the labor code at the very center of it had the needs of working women in India put forth by the Prime Minister as a part of his agenda. The fact that in our country since 1960s, the issue of medical termination of pregnancy at over 24 weeks was pending, this issue was addressed legislatively by a male Prime Minister. So when you talk about how do you deliver on gender justice and what do you define a female leader as, I have said this before and I shall say it again. A male leader takes you where you want to be. A female leader possibly takes you where you ought to be. But a male leader who gives the promise of gender justice ensures that you reach cumulatively as a society a position where women do not have to struggle to be equal partners in developing your country culturally, developing your country financially, and becoming a global voice as one. Wonderful. And that's a great segue. I'm going to turn to you, um, Mr. Sharp, on um, the issue of the Sustainable Development Goals, because that is at the heart of our global policy making, and we're eight years out from 2030. Um, it's fair to say that even the most ardent supporters of the SDGs would be worried at this point in terms of the derailment that has happened over the last couple of years. Uh, what do you see as uh, this interface between SDG 5, the goal on um, gender equality, um, and its relationship with our progress on the SDGs? And is there a way that we can make the case that by investing in women, by making sure that we achieve SDG 5, we're actually going to be able to bring the sustainable development agenda back on track? Thank you. Um, thank you very much. And, and uh, first of all, just to say, as we were discussing be beforehand, it's, a, it's a, an honor to, to help bring a little bit of gender balance to a panel for once. That's, uh, very appropriately seated. So uh, I'm very pleased uh, uh, to play that role. Um, but uh, no, it's really great to be here. And I, I would say, uh, very pleased to be here um, at my first Racina uh, dialogue. I think that, um, you know, absolutely the, the Secretary General uh, has said that gender equality is the unfinished business of our time. And, you know, this was, uh, this he said even before uh, some of the, the more recent challenges that, that we're facing. So we, we, we look at, uh, you know, we're facing a triple planetary crisis, climate change, we're, we're facing, uh, you know, trying to, to emerge from this pandemic, um, uh, wars and, and conflicts uh, all around. And I think that, you know, uh, it, the evidence is extremely clear that uh, SDG 5, gender equality, is, uh, you know, the greatest return on investment for achieving all of the SDGs across the board. And these crises have brought more focus than ever on, on this uh, central fact. So, you know, we, we look at um, where you have women in leadership positions, for example, in parliaments, in government, you have stronger action in terms of, of uh, stronger uh, climate action, um, where you have women at the, at the table in peace negotiations. Uh, the evidence is clear that you have um, uh, a greater chance of achieving peace and, and of lasting uh, peace as well. We look at, at, at pandemics, I and mean, we've seen that women-led countries, uh, in many cases, were able to, um, to, to you know, smooth the curve faster 
and builds uh, economic recovery uh, quicker as well. So uh, yet at the same time, we look across at the statistics and we see that uh, you know, across the world still um, gender parity is, is very much lacking. Um, less than 25% of uh, women in, in parliament, heads of states uh, much less uh, as well there too. So I think that, um, you know, and, and uh, we've, we've done estimates, studies show that the economy would gain $12 trillion if we could achieve, uh, you know, gender parity. Now, um, it's, it's a very exciting time to be here in, in India uh, because I think not only uh, looking back historically speaking, uh, for example, if we look at the, the, the great projects of humanity, uh, the UN, uh, Hansa Mehta was an uh, Indian delegate at the um, drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And, and she made the point, the text was reading, you know, all men are, are sort of created equal. And she changed that to all human beings are created equal. That was way back uh, then. Now we have, as, as, um, uh, as Minister Irani was saying, uh, you know, here is a, a leadership, uh, the Prime Minister Modi and, and Minister uh, Irani, not just because you're sitting next to me, uh, you know, I would say that, um, you know, really is, is focusing not just on women development, but on women-led development. And if we look at uh, the number of, of important programs uh, that the government is, is um, uh, putting forth and, and that the United Nations here, we're, we're uh, helping to partner in many different ways. You have uh, these uh, missions, Mission Shakti, which is about women's empowerment, and Mission Vatsalia, supporting adolescent girls um, throughout uh, many stages, Mission Poshan, ensuring that uh, women and girls, uh, girls have uh, you know, sufficient nutrition, um, gender responsive budgeting. So there are so many different tools uh, being uh, prioritized by government that it's, a really, it's an exciting time uh, to be here and, and, and working in this uh, kind of overarching central goal of gender equality, Goal number five, but as the core of all of the, the sustainable development goals. Wonderful. Uh, let me push you a little bit as the representative of the UN system yeah. and talk about two events that have happened this year outside of India. One is, of course, what we've seen in the neighborhood with um, adolescent girls being banned from going back to school in Afghanistan, which is a huge setback. It's, it's something that was considered a, a victory that had been won many years ago, the idea that girls would study through K-12. Um, and then when you look at the conflict in Ukraine, it's not unique, but it reminds us again that rape and sexual violence as a, as a war crime is still very much part of the playbook. Uh, as the United Nations, what is it, what is it that the U United Nations system can do to uh, get us back from, thinking, from things that we thought were victories, but they're moving targets? It's never really a, these, these, they keep coming back. So what is it that the UN can do there? Well, there I you know, I think it, you know, it's a very good point that um, we have made so much progress. I mean, the world has made so much progress, member states and communities. And we're facing now uh, the, the, the real risk in many places of roll, rolling back uh, that, that progress. So I think this is where we really need to, um, uh, to, to learn the lessons. Uh, and, and as we are attempting to build back better, we have to build on the, the central role that, that, that women have played at all levels and really to help reinforce, to change mindsets, um, to, to break down stereotypes. Uh, we're looking at all, all, all issues here, STEM, for example, I mean, promoting uh, the role of, of women in, in, in science and uh, here as well, women uh, scientists, leaders have been an important part of uh, India's very robust response to COVID, the developing uh, vaccines, having a big role there. But, um, you know, I've seen the, as I'm getting around uh, to the country, seeing um, 
an amazing uh, you know, phenomenon, which is that uh, women have really been at the front line. I know it's the, the topic of this conversation, um, but uh, whether it's uh, Madhya Pradesh, uh, Angandwadi workers ensuring that you know, routine immunizations continued throughout the pandemic, going door to door, um, that outreach, or Kudumbashri in, in, in Kerala, uh, reaching out at the household level, um, this incredible um, Seva organization in, in Gujarat, Self-Employed Women's Association, that, you know, it, it, when it comes to fighting, uh, for example, gender-based violence, um, you know, it, it, it's a whole of society response. So, of course, it's, it's about the, the legal framework, and it's about the law enforcement. It's about cultural change. It's about households. It's, it's also fundamentally about um, un unleashing the, the potential of, of women in, in all aspects, especially the economic aspect. So the women of Seva, uh, two million members who uh, all led by women, for women, uh, banking, finance, insurance, you name it, uh, they're the board and they're at the, the, the very uh, last mile. So they're demonstrating that there's absolutely, um, if, if artificial social barriers are removed, then there's absolutely nothing that can't be achieved uh, by women and communities prosper. And I've seen that everywhere that I've been. And that's the perfect segue to turn the mic over to Vanita. Vanita, you've been one of the um, architects and authors of the first responder uh, that we just saw on screen. Talk a little bit about the stories of these women and how you actually found these stories and, um, and what they mean uh, for, for us to really imbibe as lessons. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Chantika. Um, so, I mean, I think over the last two years with the pandemic, it's been such a challenging time for everyone around the world. And, but through that time, there's also been a lot of hope. There have been a lot of heroes um, uh, that you know, we've, we've all celebrated, um, those that have really worked at the front line to keep us all protected. But one of the things that we felt um, you know, through the work that we've been doing in the Reliance Foundation that we felt um, needed to be heard about a little bit more was some of these untold stories of really amazing work that was happening at the grassroots, of which women have played a really, really key role. Um, so we, we put together the first responders together with the Observer Research Foundation and also eight other organizations across India, foundations, NGOs that have been working at the grassroots to try and bring some of these stories to the fore. Um, and really what the book does is it spotlights 25 stories of women across the country that have had this real tremendous role in supporting their communities um, during this time. And these are 25 women that represent thousands of women across India. And as we were talking backstage, very common stories that we've seen in India that have also been seen in Africa, that have been seen in, in, in Bangladesh. Um, and these were women with tremendous courage, grit, resilience. Um, and as the minister was saying, um, you know, there was no prescription for how to respond during this pandemic. There was no roadmap. But these were women who just stepped forward and took charge um, in their communities. And so we think that there's a lot that can be learned from these, um, these grassroots stories. And maybe just to give you a very quick flavor of, of some of them. Um, so we had a story of Satama Devi, a, um, a woman leader from Uttarakhand. Uh, she 
was a widow um, at um, 30 years old, but then she picked herself up. She looked after um, her family's farm. She became an SHG leader. She leads a, um, an SHG network. Um, and during the pandemic, uh, she stepped forward and supported her community with putting in place a quarantine center, supporting returning migrants, helping with vaccinations. Uh, we had a lady called Vashali from Maharashtra, an ASHA worker, um, who, like many of the ASHA workers, community health workers across India, stepped forward and helped with the, uh, the vaccination efforts. Junanomi from Assam, um, uh, who uh, was uh, was working in the space of gender-based violence prior to the pandemic, and um, you know saw a, an increase in that in her community. But usually, she would do face-to-face -face work. So very quickly in the pandemic, she pivoted and she set up a telephone counselling service um, to continue to be able to support the women in her community. Barbara Ben from Gujarat, she finished her education um, at class 10, became an SHG leader, became um, a board member in her um, pharma producer company. And when the market linkages were really disrupted during the first, um, the first lockdown, she played a really critical role in helping keep those going. And then just finally, Mutham from uh, Manipur, uh, incredible woman who's an um, assistant uh, coach uh, in uh, the women's uh, football team. And she wanted to make sure that her um, students, uh, many of whom, uh, many of the athletes she worked with who came from underprivileged backgrounds, were going to struggle to keep up their, uh, their sports during this time. And so she had um, five of them come and live with her during the lockdown and helped keep them going. So these are, these are um, you know, simple stories of, um, that made a really, really big difference. And, and we think that there's, a, when we talk about women's leadership, we, we often talk about it from quite an elite perspective. When we talk about um, you know, the, the CEOs, the, um, uh, the business leaders, but I, there's a lot we can learn from these grassroots women leaders that have uh, you know, stepped forward during this time. Wonderful. Really great stories, and I'm sure I, the books are available outside, so uh, please do pick up a copy. Um, we're now going to open it up for audience questions. Um, there are microphones here. Please line up there. Uh, introduce yourselves. A question by definition is short and has a question mark at the end of it, so no comments. Uh, but uh, let's go. Ma'am. I'm Sushma Desai. Um, Smritiji, we're meeting the second time. Uh, First time we met at a Shosham event. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a representative of the Roots of Peace, uh, uh, which is a, a foundation uh, of the late Princess Dina. Uh, I'm associated with the up, um, upscaling or rather innovating the education for the Afghanistan girls. I myself am teaching many online. Um, is there any way India can help them, especially the girls abroad, by giving an online education? Uh, this is for you, ma'am. I think that if you look at the education ministry history under Prime Minister Modi's leadership, one of the first interventions for digital education, especially higher education, was made when India had its first MOOCs platform in the name of SWAM. Over 1,000 courses were thrown open, not only to Indian students, but all those nations that wanted to dip into the Indian educational system. That is still available to nations who want to have that preferred relationship from an educational perspective with India. With regards to skilling, I'm sure you're mindful of the fact that the Honorable Prime Minister has set up a separate ministry altogether for the first time in India's 
democratic history, which is the Skill Development Ministry, which has till now skilled over 60 million, uh, 6 million women. But I think one of the greatest achievements, and since Chandrika was reflecting on the impact of the pandemic, before the pandemic, when the Prime Minister spoke about the digital India revolution, I'm sure you remember, many scoffed at him and said that with such an expanse of rural entities in our country, how can our country embrace the digital um, dream that the Prime Minister professes? The pandemic, in fact, was one of the most significant indicators as to how quickly technology was embraced, especially in the rural landscape in India. And one of the Prime Minister's preferred skilling program was to make people digitally literate, especially in our rural communities. And you will be extremely uh, delighted to know that the Prime Minister's Disha program, which is dedicated especially to digital literacy, today has close to 20 million digitally certified literate women of India. So there is much that is being done in education, uh, digitally and otherwise, which, uh, as I have said before, can be proffered through engagement with the MEA uh, for countries or organizations and institutions that are interested. But I think, Chandrika, just to take a little bit uh, forward, the first responders and the beautiful book, which has been now dedicated to people in our country at large, we need to recognize that when India went into a lockdown, and there was a global lockdown and supply chains were disrupted, we did not have a single PPE suit in our country. And the workforce that made those PPE suits, 75% of it were Indian women. And in just three months, we became the second largest exporters in the world. And that is an indication to the female potential in Indian manufacturing. We have 6.6 .6 million Indian women who are first responders in the COVID pandemic that we saw, be it nurses, doctors, ASHA workers, Anganwadi workers. I took a lot of pride in the fact that the COVID test kit came out from an organization that was a contribution by a woman. And the fact that one of our vaccines, uh, the developer of it, is a female leader of a pharmacological company. So when you look at the stories, though this is just an indication of 25 stories of diligence, of, I think, an attitude where when our back is to the wall, how do we not only fight back, but how do we contribute constructively? We need to pay homage to those women also who kept services going, especially during the pandemic. When the world was closing down, they were opening up and going from home to home to ensure every family is secure. And I think administratively, one of the greatest achievements that I have seen from a health perspective for women in our country is when the Prime Minister pronounced the Ayushman Bharat Yojana. If you dial back and remember pre-2014, when we spoke about issues such as breast cancer or cancer of the cervix, people felt that culturally this is an issue on which Indian women will not be indulged in. Or, for that matter, we do not have health services enough to service the needs of Indian women. Or, for that matter, this is an issue which is taboo in our rural communities. Now, one of the feedbacks that we've received from the Ayushman Bharat project is that the footfall for women in hospital services and health establishments across the country in these two years has been 450 million. And women who wanted to get themselves checked for breast cancer or cancer of the cervix 
such women, if you look at the quantifiable numbers, till March of this year, we had close to 70 million women who got themselves checked and treated. Which means that when you have a government that ensures that women's needs are financially supported, then women do not in any way withdraw themselves up from these services or from these needs which are otherwise have been felt to be culturally uh, taboo. And I think that when you talk about response in the pandemic, you may do a great disservice when you don't look at the civic response. The fact that you've had 800 million people getting nourishment, and Ashambi has been kind enough to talk about the Portion Abhyan, the nutrition program, which is Prime Minister's flagship program. The fact that in collaboration with the centre and the state government, we had door-to-door -door delivery of supplementary nutrition to 90 million beneficiaries in the country, women, pregnant and lactating, and children under the age of six. Now that is a gigantic administrative task. So when you do um, a comparative as to the pandemic response between nations, male or female-led, you need to be mindful of the enormity of the task before our government, at the center and at the state. The fact that this partnership between government, civilians, citizens and civic society is born fruit for us is something that we celebrate and take much satisfaction in today. Fantastic. The gentleman over there. Madam, this is Ayan. I'm a journalist. I write uh, on Parnapas. Madam, we have uh, uh, nearly about uh, 6.5 lakh to 7 lakh villages where we have existence of employed uh, women uh, who exist beyond their banking IDs. So do we count them in the unorganized employed sector or how do we actually count them? Could you just repeat the first part of that? There are five yeah. women on the panel, unless you're referring to Shambi. <laughs> no, madam, to you. <laughs> okay. And you'd like to know how women in the unorganized sectors are yeah. counted? Yeah. So we have under the Ministry of Labor, and I'm sure as a journalist you would know this, um, a program called the Ishram Portal. Ishram Portal right now has a registration of over 53% women who are a participant in the unorganized sector. But I must compliment your journalistic abilities. The fact that you can't find me for an interview and would use the ORF platform is a great contribution and tribute to your abilities. But I'm sure that when you meet the Labour Minister, he can give you more details on it. The fact that the Labour Code, and much has been spoken about equal pay for equal work, the fact that the Labour Code now makes it mandatory is also something that needs reflection. Um, good afternoon, Lucy Corkin um, from Rand Merchant Bank in South Africa. There's always a lot of focus on the role of women in the workplace, but perhaps less focus on the role of men in raising the next generation. From a, from a, from a cultural and from a social and from a legis legislative perspective, what can we do to shift the traditional perception that the responsibility of childcare should fall mostly to the shoulders of the woman? Do you, do you want to direct this to anybody or can anyone on the panel take Anyone it? in the panel. Anyone on the panel. Thank you very much. Well, um, in my country, every job is equal to anyone, to any gender. Because we, we feel that if we want to create jobs, 
we create jobs in all sectors and open for every gender. So there's no job in South Africa that is meant for women. Men can also have that particular job that is related to women. And we're starting from home where in the family, when parents distribute tasks in the family at home, because in some of the homes in South Africa don't help, help us, our children are doing the work. So when we separate work in the household, you separate it equally, men, girls, and boys, so that you strengthen the bo both of them. Because it cannot be said that it's only girls that must cook, but the boys must also cook. Because next time they will take the job to be the chefs. Thank you. I think if I, if I, and permit me for saying this, if I have interpreted your con uh, the context of your question, is whether we need to do more societally to ensure that men can be empowered enough or not be looked down upon for child rearing, I would totally support that position. Because there is a quantifiable limit as to how much you want to legislate family, culture and society. I think that today, especially when I spoke about the legislation of medical termination of pregnancy at over 24 weeks, what I take pride in is not only that a male prime minister led that legislation, but I also take pride in the fact that it was unanimously supported by all Indian men, that there was not a single Indian man who stood up in objection to it. And I think given today the family complex that we all are a part of, or a party to a witness, it is incumbent upon us to now not shame men when they take time off just to look after children. I think that is where we begin that change. It is happening predominantly in urban Indian centers. I'm sure it will percolate to rural communities as well. But we are all witness to the fact that even in our rural communities, our parents, at least mine, because I've seen that background and I do not come from a very, very economically empowered family. I come, in fact, from a lower middle class family. But we have seen how men and women have equally partnered. So I think that societally, fundamentally, that is the change that we are all bearing witness to now. But yes, I would agree that it needs that added push. We have time for one more question. Ma'am. Um, thank you. Um, so I'm sure most of you have heard this about, you know, little boys are taught to be brave and little girls are taught to be perfect. So one of the things I sense when I hear uh, discussions about women and leadership uh, is that, uh, and I'm not saying it happened in this panel, but in general, is the assumption that all you need to do is reserve some place for women and they will come in there and then they will immediately start functioning uh, you know, in, as great leaders. And um, uh, I, I don't know if the Minister Smitri Irani would like the fact that I'm saying this, but she has been at the receiving end of this a lot in the last eight years, where you know she's being scrutinized very carefully, and every little thing is uh, imperfection has been magnified. So the question is, uh, since we have three ministers on the panel, um, when we talk about women in leadership positions, uh, what are we doing to train women and especially girls to become leaders? Because boys do get this um, support and uh, mentoring and training. And I think most of us here are, are here because we have got mentoring and training. So uh, what do we do? What does the government do to ensure that um, 
women get this kind of support and training to become leaders at a, at a national level. For example, if we've identified 20, 25 women who have shown potential to be great leaders, what next? Well, you first. You sound then. like a soul sister. Uh, when Chandrika was speaking about appropriate seating, did you notice that Shambi is sitting right in the center? <laughs> If it was a manual, not a panel, you wouldn't have had the female sitting at the center. It's not uh, alphabetical? Uh, no, no, no. Oh. Don't worry. Um, we just started. <laughs> <laughs> so now, how do you train women how to lead? Comes with the assumption that they don't know how to lead comes with the assumption that men do. And I think that fundamentally, if you ask me administratively what is being done through the Ministry of Rural Development, Urban Development, Capacity Building Commissions, through the UPSC, through institutions like Labasna and Missouri, training is being done. However, what for you is leadership? Is it only leading in a political capacity? Where all do we need leadership to ensure women get their rightful place? How many of our academic institutions are led by women? How many of our organizations in the corporate sector are led by women? Now, if you tell me to look around all the financial organizations that accumulate the corporate strength of our country, how many of those organizations have a functional committee where a woman, if she is harassed at work, can go and report? So when you look at leadership to bring about emancipation, especially for women, I think we limit our prospects when we only look at politics. We need to ensure that female leadership emerges not as a handout, but out of sheer competence. So if you ask me, how do you encourage leadership? You begin at homes, you begin at schools. To say that be empowered by the alphabet, to say be empowered by a skill set, to say be empowered by mathematics or your love for science, and lead in every vocation possible. For me, my greatest joy is to see Tessie Thomas at DRDO leading. For me, one of my greatest joys is to see Sangeeta Reddy go to the G20 panel and talk about women leadership and health needs in India. So for me, the fact that these 25 wonderful women have found space in a book tells me that there are 25 lakh stories still to be told. So how do you train leadership in women? Is to show them female leadership in the institutions that they function in. Be it schools, be it colleges or politics. Madam Vaseka, you have the yeah, last word. Uh, I fully agree. And uh, education is very important. And confidence from the families, from the society, and a safe space to grow and be your own person. That is very important. And encouragement. And, you know, we have been, uh, three last three days, we've been talking about wars and uh, trade relations and you know, the world is there's a lot of toxic masculinity in the world you know i'm just saying it uh, with uh, no offense to anybody but uh, all leaders 
uh, must steer clear of toxic masculinity be it a female leader or a male leader the world will be a, a much better place then thank you on that note <laughs> join me in a huge round of applause to this wonderful panel thank you for tuning in to policy pod the orf podcast please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes